saw a dead body for the first time, says Vlad, a Donbass refugee who was 14 when the conflicts on the Russian-Ukrainian border broke out in 2014. I remember a Kachuska shooting near my house one night. We didn't really care about the Maidan in my town, only when buildings started blowing up. People started to worry. Everything happened so suddenly, it felt like someone just dropped this info on us. Now you are no longer Ukraine. You are DPR, the Donetsk People's Republic. Vlad's family was able to escape to Russia because of his father's connections after the separatists took over. But not everyone was so lucky. According to the UN, seven years of conflict on the eastern Ukrainian border saw over 4,000 civilians lose their lives, with the total number of casualties rising above 40,000. Today, over 100,000 Russian troops have accumulated across the perimeter of the Ukrainian border, with both Ukraine and U.S. stating that the headcount is posing a real threat of invasion. This is the Talon University Podcast. I'm your host, Terry McDonald. I'm a lecturer of international relations here at Talon University, and on today's episode, we will have Professor Matthew Crandall. Matthew is a professor of international relations here at Talon University, and he is an expert in small state security. Today, he's going to help us understand what is happening at the Ukrainian border and what the stakes are. Hi, Matthew. Uh, welcome to the Talon University podcast. So tell us, Matthew, why has Ukraine become a geopolitical flashpoint? Thank you for having me. Well, I think this has been uh, many years in the making. Uh, we can go all the way back to the Orange Revolution. Um, and in some ways, we can bring in Samuel Huntington, right? He has the clash of civilizations. And uh, Ukraine is uh, on the fault line, you know, in some ways between the East and between the West. Uh, I think um, maybe more recent years, when we think about what's going on right now, we have a, a change in the world order, right? We have a rise of China, resurgent Russia, uh, potentially weakening of the United States. Um, and this is a great opportunity for some countries to, you know, challenge the United States, especially uh, the two uh, classic examples, Taiwan and Ukraine right now, where you have a rising power and a core interest, you know, facing off with the United States who has a peripheral or at least non-core interest Um and so that's what I think China and Russia are, are betting is that, you know, we're more interested in these regions than you are. Um, and I guess um, we'll see what happens. Well, that's a good segue because I was going to ask, if you ask the USA, what would they say their reason is for being involved in Ukraine? Well, I think for the United States, um, there's a long history of being engaged in Europe, uh, wanting to see a, a free, uh, unified, open, um, peaceful Europe. And so especially in, uh, you know, 2008 with the Georgia-Russia war, uh, also the uh, 2014 Ukrainian conflict, um, which is still ongoing, uh, you know, I think that just brings home um, a reminder of what used to be in Europe. And that's something that the United States has has long held as a key foreign policy um, agenda. Even in the, the 90s in the Balkans, you know, the United States has always had at least some interest in um, a conflict-free Europe. So would you say that would be the same motivation for the European Union for being involved in Ukraine? I would think so, yeah. I mean, for the European Union, it, it was definitely you know a free and unified democratic um, European Union. Uh, and so, you know, when we see countries like Moldova and Ukraine, you know, the European Union from their uh, standpoint, you know, they're wanting to 
uh, you know, really see, um, you know, prosperous, successful, democratic, um, integrated, you know, countries into Europe. Um, and, you know, when does Europe stop, you know, and so that in that sense, it's hard to really just say, well, you know, this country gets to be in the European Union, this one doesn't. From, from Brussels, you know, if it's a European country that's really, you know, making progress towards democracy and values, um, then I think the EU has usually, you know, been willing to listen. If one were a skeptic, would they say there are other motivations involved from the Western point of view? Uh, absolutely. And I think this is um, something in international relations, you know, that we uh, teach and discuss here at Tallinn University. There are a lot of different theories, a lot of different ways at perceiving relations. Uh, and so certainly you can always look at geopolitics. You can look at influence, spheres of influence, um, buffer zones. Um, you can look at a lot of different aspects, um, you know, resources, alliances. So a lot of these kind of self-interested uh, elements definitely, um, you know, can be discussed. And this is, for example, what, you know, Putin would uh, would argue is that, you know, it isn't just about democratic values and, you know, kind of the Ukrainians just kind of naturally wanting to grab onto this bastion of light and hope that we see coming from the West. But instead, it's it's much more this geopolitical um, battle for interests. Uh, yeah, so I think you could certainly make an argument for those aspects as well. Well, you nailed another segue there because I was going to ask, so what does Russia say that their motivations are in this situation? Well, I think firstly, we have to remember that this is a core interest for Russia. Uh, and I think... Um, from the Russian perspective, the stakes are high. Uh, they perceive NATO as an ever-enlarging, ever-expanding entity that largely is an you know, outsourcing of U.S. influence, which eventually would surround and lead Russia to be a peripheral country, right? If you look at kind of, you know, where would NATO uh, enlargement eventually end? Um, and so... Russia definitely sees this uh, not so much um, as about Ukraine or Ukraine's relations with the West. Uh, it sees it more about relations with the West and Russia. Um, and um, yeah, definitely Russia sees this um, through that geopolitical lens. This is something that I think caught the European Union off guard where, um, you know, back when they were signing association agreements, they were kind of saying, you know, hey, well, this isn't mutually exclusive. You know, why does having positive relations with the European Union um, mean that that's a problem with Ukraine having positive relations with Russia? Uh, and Russia really didn't see it this way. They said, you know, hey, this is in some ways a zero-sum game. This is um, about competition and, and geopolitics. Um, um, yeah, so I think that might be the perspective of Russia. I mean, are those reasons justified? Does Russia have a point there or are they just still operating in you know, uh, Bismarck's sphere of influence uh, and like removing agency from the border countries? Well, I think um, the first point, you know, a, a good, maybe just to say, you know, in some ways, you know, Russia might be ahead of their time and, and maybe they've played a role in causing things to come to pass. But we do see a world that is filled with more geopolitical competition. Um, and again, some of that you could say is in part due to Russia's behavior. Um, so maybe a self-fulfilling prophecy. Um, but if you look at China, relations with the United States and other countries, uh, you know, I think this is something that uh, that we're seeing. And so if that is the world in which we live in and the future world that we will be living in, you know, you can certainly understand maybe why Russia would think the way that they think or be potentially concerned. Um, 
I think a really interesting point, and this is one of the problems with looking at the world only from a geopolitical framework, um, is that there is agency in smaller countries, and it isn't always about the United States forcing NATO upon someone or forcing European Union membership. We just had the UK, right? And they decided, you know what? We don't want to be a member. And they left. And that was it. They left. You know, and so in this sense, you know, the states definitely have agency. And that's something I think that Russia definitely doesn't recognize, uh, the agency of Ukraine. Um, I think this spills over also into the discussion on democracy, uh, where they definitely have a more sinister take on democracy. Um, and I think they view the masses as, you know, people that can be, um, you know, tricked, influenced, and that in a democracy, there's always actors um, that are trying to influence and change. And so in this sense, you know, the idea that, you know, Ukrainians would operate in a vacuum um, and then make the choice that's best for them. I think they see that no matter what happens, there's always actors um, that are competing for influence and changing the way we, we perceive things. Um, and you're seeing some pretty astute, um, maybe that's too positive of a word, but, you know, pretty cunning behavior uh, from Russia in terms of manipulating and changing the opinions of people. So, uh, it's a really interesting um, interesting era, but I do think that um, everybody should definitely pay more attention to the agency of uh, small states. We're going to go back a little bit. Um, Ukraine has, of course, had certain expectations when it came to its territorial sovereignty. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about the uh, Budapest Memorandum and how it shapes the issue today? Yeah, so this is a really uh, interesting um, factor and it definitely has come up quite a bit in the media. So the Budapest Memorandum, I think it was signed in 1994. Um, and what happens with the collapse of the Soviet Union, and again, this is really almost unprecedented development uh, where a single functioning state breaks up you know, into 15 different states. And there's a lot of critical infrastructure, uh, again, that used to be a single state entity that's now divided up. You know, we think of the space, you know, launch um, in Kazakhstan, but um, for example, nuclear weapons um, and materials in Ukraine, that's a big question, right? Um, because no one really wanted to see the pro proliferation of nuclear weapons. Um, and so they came together and they negotiated, right? And said, Ukraine, you know, we, we don't want you to have nuclear weapons. Um, and so this memorandum was an agreement between the UK, the United States, and the Russian Federation uh, and Ukraine to basically say, you know, go ahead, um, you know, give up your nukes. Um, and there are also um, assurances, you know, um, respect for Ukrainian sovereignty. Um, if Ukraine ever does fall under aggression, you know, a commitment to take up the issue with the UN Security Council and uh, and find solutions to the problems. Um, so it's, it's an expression of solidarity. Um, um, usually in the media, we hear it as a guarantee of Ukrainian sovereignty, territorial sovereignty. Um, that is in there to a certain extent. Um, I just read it earlier today before this podcast, a pretty brief, pretty somewhat vague document. It doesn't have a lot of details, nitty gritties, uh, for example. Well, sometimes purposely international agreements are like this. But uh, so do you think Ukrainians feel justly aggrieved uh, if they don't get assistance, having given up one of the primary means of defense on the expectation of collective security? I don't know if um, Ukraine ever really had serious intentions on maintaining nuclear capabilities and to be a nuclear power going forward in the future. So I'm not sure how many Ukrainians feel that, um, you know, disappointed that they gave up, you know, kind of the, the strongest chip in their, you know, in their toolkit uh, or, you know, the, the, the most useful tool or leverage. Um, 
And then um, your question on assistance. And so this is the biggest question. When I read through the Budapest Memorandum, my biggest takeaway is how um, clearly and kind of just with gross disregard for international law, Russia has, has acted. So you can find many clauses in that agreement where Russia is clearly violating, you know, every aspect of the, you know, um, the territorial, you know, from Crimea, from eastern Ukraine, involving in a conflict, blocking resolutions in the UN Security Council, um, really just a gross violation of that agreement by the Russian Federation. When we look at what the UK and the United States uh, committed to, um, there's not a lot of specifics. And so I don't think Ukraine or anyone else ever really assumed that the United States would send troops to defend territory on their behalf in a military manner. Um, you know, the United States has said for a very long time that, you know, this is not Article 5, that there's a difference between a NATO ally um, and the Budapest Memorandum that was signed um, with Ukraine. When you go through the document, you know, it, it says, you know, support for Ukrainian territory, um, taking it up at the UN Security Council. Um, and I think when you look at what the United States has done so far, um, attempts to resolve it at the UN Security Council, um, political support, support for you, uh, Ukrainian territory, and military support, right? Uh, billions of, um, of you know, dollars um, over the last seven years. Uh, so I think that what the United States has done um, certainly meets the spirit of that agreement. At least that would be my uh, perspective of it. Yeah, and of course, with many international agreements, there's always a problem with enforcing it if someone decides to abandon the principles in it. Let's keep talking about the Ukrainians themselves, uh, as opposed to things that are happening to them. Uh, recent polling has shown that 58% support joining NATO and 62% uh, support joining the EU. This shows that these things are desired, but not overwhelmingly so in the population there. What do you think, sir, you think Ukrainians are weighing here when it comes to the pros and cons of NATO or EU membership? Well, I think... Um it was a very good question uh, when we look at what Ukraine wants. Um, maybe before getting into this, you know, just an interesting example of the Baltic states. You know, this was perhaps, you know, maybe something not too different in the early 90s, right? Russian troops were stationed in Estonia, for example. Um, and I remember it was um, one Estonian um, political historian who said that in this NATO enlargement previously, again, the agency of the Baltic states were, were kind of glossed over that, you know, that the Baltic states, you know, did everything um, in their power to kind of break break down the door. Uh, and so in this sense, um, I think when we look at Ukraine and, and potential membership, you know, a lot of it does depend on them, what they want, uh, right? Uh, their actions, you know, especially European Union membership is very um, difficult. There's a lot of chapters, uh, criteria that you have to meet. Uh, and when looking at the, the people in Ukraine, what would they like? Um, you know, sometimes people outside the European or Union are more pro-EU than people inside the European Union. Um, you know, um, but what they're looking at is, I think, um, the same things also that we see in uh, in Finland, right, or Sweden when we talk about NATO uh, discussions and discourse. You know, there's the idea um, that if you join NATO, would you then cause a further destabilization or um, geopolitical problem? Right? You don't you don't want to upset the bear. For example, um, and so uh, in that sense, I think that's what people are thinking: is that you know, if we do try to join NATO in the EU, first, would we get in, and secondly, would that cause you know larger destabilizations, you know, uh, from Russia, you know, kind of the bandwagoning versus balancing uh, debate, um, and that might also be different in different regions, you know. So if you're in Lvov, 
uh, right, Western Ukraine, I can imagine that the the pro-EU sentiment would be rather high. You know, if you are in, uh, you know, Eastern Ukraine in some of these regions, um, you know, uh, Donetsk and Luhansk, for example, right, then obviously I think that people are going to be a little more um, risk-weary, kind of uh, a little more sensitive to some of the risks that might be involved of, uh, of closer discussions of NATO. Well, you bring up the point of factoring in Russian reaction. Uh, it's been talked about, uh, like, negotiating with Putin to exchange a guarantee for no invasion for a guarantee of no NATO-EU membership, for example. Should the Western organizations be factoring in Russian reaction when they're deciding their membership? Well, this is a really good question because, um, and in thinking about this podcast, you know, there are a lot of things that we can talk about what should be. Um, and then in terms of kind of reality, kind of this realistic take, you know, that those don't, those aren't always the same. So in that sense, I think, um, you know, traditionally with NATO, at least, you know, after the end of the Cold War, we haven't really viewed NATO the same as in the Cold War, where NATO was specifically a deterrent against Soviet, right, uh, invading. Um, you know, in the 90s, NATO was, you know, kind of go out of area or go out of business. You know, you're bringing peace to the periphery. So it's a very different kind of NATO. And just recently, we've seen a return to territorial defense, basically from Russia. Uh, although, again, there are a lot of other security threats uh, that NATO deals with as well. Um, so in that sense, um, you know, if NATO is very much existing for a single purpose, then I think you do have to take into consideration, well, you know, what are some of the best ways to serve that purpose? Uh, and in that case, you know, enlargement might not necessarily be the most effective. Uh, but if we look at the spirit of NATO from the 90s, uh, then I think, you know, ideally, you don't necessarily, you know, allow Russia to kind of take you hostage or, you know, dictate the terms using violence and whatnot that... Um, that you should grant agency to other states and view, well, you know, if this is a country that, um, you know, believes in democracy, at least to a certain level, right, with NATO, it's not necessarily maybe the, the strict democratic uh, levels as the European Union, but you do have civilian control over the military and you do have a lot of certain um, values and aspects involved as well. And so um, I think, you know, in an ideal world, no, you don't necessarily take Russian uh, behavior into consideration, uh, but there definitely is a realistic element of foreign policy where people do have to still think about, you know, do they want to go to war um, over Ukraine with Russia, right? Um, that was a question, for example, that was asked, um, I believe it was Stephen Hadley um, in the United States um, in the 2008 war with Georgia. He said, you know, is anyone willing to go to war with Russia over Georgia, right? They asked that question. Well, on that theme about other powers sort of making decisions on behalf of Ukraine. There's a lot of talk uh, about the legacy of Molotov-Ribbentrop here. Yeah, so this was um, the the deal between the devils, right? As uh, maybe the American me would say, um, uh, the Stalin-Hitler pact, right? That uh, was a pact of non-aggression between the Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union. There were secret clauses that also divided up the spheres of influence. Um, and this is something um, that... Is, was re devastating for Eastern Europe, right? That really goes against the world that so many people have worked to create where states can live in peace, um, free from fear of aggression and invasion. Um, and so what we see nowadays with the return of geopolitics is this uh, element where it is the large states doing what they want to do and the weak states, you know, accepting what they have to accept. Um, and so when we look at a country like Ukraine, right, when it is Putin talking to Biden, 
um, two large powers kind of discussing what's going to happen. You know, there's a lot of people. I mean, how many people live in Ukraine? 40 million, 50 million, right? Um, somewhere in between those numbers. A lot of people are saying, well, why don't we get a seat at the table, right? How come we don't have um, have a choice? Um, are we back to the days of having our fates decided for us as opposed to us deciding our own fate? Yeah. Who are you to tell us that we have to remain neutral? Um, right. So, so I think those are. Um, um, it's definitely a very um, relevant um, um, topic to, to kind of highlight again, and, and we definitely see this, right? Um, I know in the in the Baltic Sea region, right here in Estonia, um, certainly not to the same magnitude, but um, a, a concern. Uh, was again the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, right? Where it's Germany and Russia, and they say, you know what, this is in our interests, so this is where this is what we're going to do. Other states are saying, well, you know, we don't like this, and and is basically saying, well, you know, your concerns just weren't really significant, or you weren't significant enough for us to listen to your concerns. And so I think you definitely see this um, throughout the world, where um, you know small and medium actors are not necessarily uh, included, invited to the table as as often as as they once were. So, well, you do bring up Estonia, and I did want to get to that. Like, what is Estonia's take on this whole situation? What What are they hoping to happen, or what are they fearing will happen? Yeah, so Estonia, I haven't really necessarily seen as much activism coming from Estonia. I mean, I think Estonia's positions are clear, um, their policies are clear, but I think as a small state, they also feel limited in terms of what they can they can do uh, right. You know they weren't invited to the telephone call right with between Biden and Putin. Um, Biden himself, for example, mentioned that you know he might discuss this with a couple NATO allies. You know again, not including Estonia and some of the the Baltic states. Uh, but Estonia has has definitely been a very strong supporter of Ukraine, um, territory of Ukraine. Um, they have for quite a while been um, concerned about the the way that Western Europe has reacted to, to Russia. I think they would view some actions as either appeasement or being willfully ignorant of potential threats. And I think they view um, a stronger reaction to Russia as a more effective deterrent uh, from future problems. That would be at least the Estonian um, perspective. Um, you know, How much does that really kind of get uh, into the discussion? We'd have to see. Lithuania, for example, has been a little more aggressive um, you know, for example, sending lethal aid to Ukraine, you know, that's something that Estonia hasn't uh, done. Um, but that would definitely be the the, the thing that Estonia is, is supporting and uh, hoping to see. I mean, I think the same as everyone else, right? Uh, a peaceful and, and independent Ukraine, right? That's also a, you know, a democracy, a yeah, functioning democracy. Yeah. Do you think Estonia is worried in any sense about uh, what happens if Russia's incursions into neighboring territories are allowed to go relatively unpunished? Uh, ab absolutely. Abs well, um, you know, yes and no. I mean, I think, you know, you're hinting at, you know, at what point does the do the incursion stop? You know, um, I don't think anyone's concerned right now about, you know, incursions into NATO countries. Um, but at the same time, we did see this in Georgia in 2008. You know, we're seeing it in Ukraine. Um, you're seeing a lot of different hybrid um you know, either warfare tactics or tactics of coercion. Um, so Estonia is definitely concerned, um, but not to the extent I think that you're hinting at that, you know, that something else might be imminent. Um, but yeah, definitely, definitely a concern. Um, and again, you know, it, it's tough to predict the future. Uh, and so, I, you know, I think um, as the Baltic states, 
have mentioned many times, you know, um, they're not interested in assurance, they're interested in deterrence. Uh, and so I think, yeah, you know, long-term, definitely they are interested in seeing, um, you know, a, a level of deterrence. Um, and, you know, I think the West, um, you know, this isn't maybe as helpful to Ukraine though, but, you know, when Ukraine gets invaded, you know, NATO sends troops to the Baltic states in Poland, right? So, um, you know, they're not sending the troops to Ukraine, but I mean, I think there's a pretty clear red line, um, right? A core interest that has been marked here in the Baltic states in Poland. So, um, you know, I think any type of future escalation probably would not, uh, you know, involve this region, at least, you know, in our current time frame. You never know what happens in the future though. Yeah, and you bring up a good point about Russia's various forms of aggression and, uh, you know, uh, as our last episode was about the weaponization of migration, we've talked before about um, cyber attacks and things like that. So, as, as you said, Estonia has long called for stronger pushback against Russia. I'm going to let you out of here on two more questions. First of all, there's currently an ongoing energy price crisis uh, tied into this conflict in Europe. And given the tumultuous relationship between Russia and Ukraine relating to national gas distribution in the EU, what role does Russian energy play in West's reaction to all this? Well, that's a really good question. Um, and I'm not entirely sure, to be honest, to what extent the West, because at this point, the West has made pretty specific um, statements you know, about supporting Ukraine and warning Russia of severe consequences. Um, so even if Europe was not dependent on Russian energy at all, I don't think you would have seen a different response. You know, well, we'll send troops, you know, or we'll do something else. So, you know, I think in that sense, um, you know, Europe and the United States would still be militarily averse just because of the history of what's been happening in Afghanistan or Iraq, right? Mm -hmm. Um but I think it is definitely, uh, you know, a card that Putin has in his toolkit. Um, you know, so when he does kind of have an army on Ukraine, um, or if there were to be significant sanctions, you know, the kind of nuclear card is to take the Russian banks off of the SWIFT kind of system. Um, you know, he also has a nuclear card that he can kind of retaliate with. So I think it maybe doesn't necessarily change the the approach, but it definitely does encourage. Um, a willingness to de-escalate uh, to and to maybe kind of um, prevent a quick a quick escalation, uh, and maybe we've seen that already, right? For example, having the call between Biden and Putin, you know, these things that have already happened, you know, maybe that's already in, also in part because of, of the energy. Um, yeah, so that's a good, uh, a very good point. Okay, well, <laughs> now it's time to put on your prognosticator's hat. Uh... Given where we are, um, how do you see this all being most likely to unfold? Well, this is a really tough one. Um, you know, uh, I kind of joke, you know, back um, in, was it 2008, Sarah Palin, a candidate for vice president on the John McCain ticket, you know, she mentioned this possibility of, of Russia being aggressive and, you know, people made fun of her on Saturday Night Live. You know, I can see Russia from my house, you know, Alaska being a neighbor of Russia. And, uh, and it turned out, right, she was the only one that somehow was able to predict the future. Um, even though she certainly was not the most uh, right informed on the issues, um, a little bombastic, you know, in her style, and so you never know with predicting the future. Um, but for me, it's it's very difficult to see where this goes because Putin's uh, goals, I think, are large scale goals. You know, if you look at just the annexation, you know, of Luhansk, 
while still a very important region, you know, for for Putin, you know, he's much more concerned about Ukraine as a whole, or at least you know a larger portion of Ukraine. Um, than just the Luhansk and Donetsk uh, regions that are currently under the separatist regions. Um, how would Putin be able to um, achieve his goals, you know, with an army of 70,000 or 170,000, right, somewhere in that range? You know, that's very, very difficult. Um, so I'm, I'm a little, uh, I guess, just flabbergasted to see because, um, you know, Putin wanting a pro-Russian or neutral regime permanently uh, is something that you know isn't likely just through dialogue. Um, my guess is that Putin is using the troops as leverage to try to enforce the Minsk Accords, which were not favorable for Ukraine. You know, the federalization, kind of giving Luhansk and Donetsk kind of more, um, you know, I guess freedom or or agency to kind of veto future Ukrainian NATO ascension. Um, so my guess is that that is what Putin is hoping for. You know, the West is never going to come out and say. You know, okay, you're right. We won't let Ukraine into NATO. Um, but if they say, "Hey, Ukraine, we really think that you should federalize," and the result of that federalization is right, the ability of Luhansk and Donetsk to veto NATO membership, you know, then that's a, w a win for Russia. Um, but if you look at the regions, they are becoming more integrated into Russia. So it's also very skeptical that Russia would then give them back to Ukraine. And I think. That would have to be something that would happen, right? To see a, a fully functional Minsk Accords where there's a federalization of Ukraine, right? The Donetsk and Luhansk regions would have to be still a part of Ukraine. And when you look at kind of what's happening, right? The giving out passports, citizenship, um, you know, kind of plans for spending, right? Russia's doubled the spending, right, on the regions, you know, after COVID. Um, it doesn't look like they're planning on, uh, you know, kind of this um, successful federalization of Ukraine. So, Again, the most likely outcome for Ukraine, this kind of you know discussion and dialogue on the Minsk Accords, doesn't necessarily seem to be what's happening on the ground. Um, and so, if we do see what's happening on the ground, um, I don't know. Um, again, taking Crimea was was new precedent. Um, would Russia be happy with just annexing the Donetsk um, and Luhansk regions? And even if that was the end goal, they wouldn't need 170,000 troops to do that. They could just politically say, you know, hey, we're just annexing these two ter territories. You know, I mean, the Ukrainians don't control those territories right now. Um, so I don't necessarily know. It's a, it's a pretty tough uh, situation. Um, I think what Putin is doing right now, um, to be honest, I don't know if Putin knows. I think Putin, I read this, you know, somewhere, but I think Putin is creating options. Uh, you know, he's opening up his toolkit. He's going to the hardware store. He's buying more tools, right? And he's going to kind of, you know, come out, see which way the wind is blowing, you know, see what the weather's like. And, you know, I think you'll kind of see what he eventually decides to build. Um, I don't know if... So just like poking at pressure points and seeing where weak points emerge? Well, I think he's looking at different options um, and kind of seeing what eventually happens. You know, if he can get a certain response from the West on one issue, for example, the no NATO declaration, um, you know, that might result in one certain outcome. If he doesn't get that, maybe it gets a different option. So he's probably got this uh, whole range of scenarios mapped out. Um, and and we'll have to see. And, and then also one uh, maybe point that we haven't discussed that maybe is interesting for this conflict and other conflicts is the offensive-defensive balance. Um, recently, Ukraine, for example, has uh, purchased uh, drones from Turkey um, under the Trump administration. You know, the sending of lethal aid to Ukraine, uh, Javelin missiles. You know, Putin might be looking and saying, hey, we have COVID, we have, you know, 
new governments. We have weak governments in the West dealing with other things, pulling out of Afghanistan, risk-averse governments. If we wait 10 years, five years, um, will we even be able to put an army on the border of Ukraine and kind of militarily get what we want to get? Um, so he might kind of look at this kind of as an maybe the, maybe the last opportunity. Um, you know that that door might be closed in the future, depending on how Ukraine continues to develop its its military capabilities, um, or you know just the future um, of the West and, and the the COVID situations and whatnot. Well, certainly a lot to think about, and of course uh, we have nothing but hope for the people of Ukraine to have a peaceful resolution to this uh, that you know is in line with their wishes. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Crandall. Uh, Matthew, it's really nice for you to come, and uh, hopefully we'll see you again another time. Thank you. Sounds good. I look forward to it. Okay. Thank you for joining us on this episode. Uh, as always, we were brought to you by the Town University School of Governance, Law, and Society, the Baltic Film, Media, and Arts School here at Town University. And our guest today, of course, was Professor Matthew Crandall. Thanks for coming on, Matthew. Our producer is Avo Ulvik. Our research coordinator is Vega Samolue. And we had additional contributions by Annie Ruda Inamdar, Jana Levitna, Kano Yusui, Karen Helen Kasavadnik, Temitope Aluko. The theme song is Ghosts of 68 by myself and Paul Simmons. Any additional music is composed and performed by myself or Avo Ulvik. You can find us on Twitter at Talon Podcast, Facebook and Instagram at TLU Podcast. And we'll be back again in two weeks. And for those of you who celebrate, happy holidays. For more, you can check out www.tlu.ee.